You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. GVG is not a commonly known medication. Known as Vigabitrin in Canada, the UK, and other parts of the world, it is approved for treating epilepsy, but it may do much more than that. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Dewey, Senior Scientist at Brookhaven National Laboratory. Dr. Dewey also holds faculty appointments at SUNY Stony Brook and NYU's School of Medicine. He has published extensively on the neurobiology of addiction. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Dewey. Well, thank you for having me. Dr. Dewey, you've spent much of your research time in the last few years investigating GVG. Please tell us about it. GVG is a, stands for gamma vinyl GABA. It's a rather old drug. It was synthesized in 1976. It's known as Vigabitrin. It's sold under the trade name Sabril. It's actually a very interesting drug. It's a suicide inhibitor of an enzyme. That means it's a it's a drug that's very specific for a brain enzyme, and that enzyme is called GABA transaminase. GABA transaminase is what breaks down the neurotransmitter GABA. GABA is the most common neurotransmitter in our brain, and it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So the theory behind it was actually very simple. It was actually the, one of the first drugs that was specifically synthesized to bind to this enzyme. And the theory was very simple. If you bind this enzyme, and this enzyme is responsible for breaking down GABA, then GABA levels will increase. And if you increase brain GABA levels, you provide a much more efficient or effective mechanism for inhibiting brain activity. And we know that epileptic patients are patients who suffer from parts of their brain being overactive. So if you can increase the natural inhibition of those centers by giving a drug like Bigabitrin, then you effectively treat epilepsy. The drug is really a very effective drug for treatment, treating epilepsy, and, more, and most specifically for treating a very fatal form of the disease called West Syndrome. West Syndrome is a fatal epileptic disease in, in young children, and it's, so it's a number one drug for treating West Syndrome. Now, in terms of its use, it is approved. It's used in over 70 countries around the world. It's currently not available for use here in the United States. It's in the process of going through the FDA for approval for epilepsy. The reason that I was interested in it was because of my knowledge in addiction. What we know in addiction is that all drugs increase, all addictive drugs, increase brain dopamine. And the degree to which they do that is directly related to their addictive liability. So my thinking was actually quite simple. If we could inhibit psychostimulant or illicit drug abuse increase in brain dopamine, then drugs would no longer be addictive. So it's very simple. If you had a drug like methamphetamine that increases brain dopamine several thousand times above baseline, then a drug like Vigabitrin would inhibit brain dopamine and by doing so would prevent methamphetamine from increasing brain dopamine. So what we did was a series of studies back in the late 80s, early 90s, demonstrating that Vigabitrin can modulate brain dopamine levels. Then the next step was a, was a simple one, it's just to show that if you gave a drug like cocaine, which increases brain dopamine, Vigabitrin will completely block that. So we've actually now at this point gone through every addictive drug out there from those that are legal, tobacco and alcohol, to the illicit drugs, including every drug of abuse that we can imagine. And have, we have demonstrated that Vigabitrin, or GVG, blocks 
the increases in brain dopamine associated with every addictive drug. It's been a long road. I've been at this for almost 20 years, and no drug has been studied as extensively for addiction as Vigabitrin. We've now obviously brought this up to the next stage where a small biotech pharmaceutical company called Catalyst Pharmaceuticals licensed the technology for Vigabitrin. They have filed and have approved two INDs with the FDA, and they are now in the process of running double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials with Vigabitrin for the treatment of cocaine addiction. Before we did that, we actually ran two small open-label clinical trials in cocaine abuse, and what we showed was that it was extremely effective in blocking cocaine-induced increases in brain dopamine, and it was extremely effective in getting people off cocaine. So our preliminary data in our two open-label trials were extremely promising, and we're now in a position with Catalyst Pharmaceuticals to do our large, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. Now, when I think about Vigabitrin's mechanism of action, so you're essentially increasing GABA to decrease dopamine, don't you worry about decreasing dopamine too much and developing perhaps Parkinsonian-type symptoms? It's a very good question. Actually not, because the mechanism of action for Vigabitrin is very unique. It has what's called an activity-dependent mechanism. And really what that means is in patients who take Vigabitrin, you increase GABA levels by as much as a 1,000 times. But you do that within the neuron. So it's not that it causes an increase in brain GABA that's released, so you inhibit everything. What it is is that these neurons store huge amounts of excess GABA. Now, under normal conditions, dopamine cells fire at a given rate, and the GABA neurons monitor the firing of those dopamine cells. And if you have a slight increase in dopamine firing in response to a reward like food, like being in the company of a good friend, like getting a 90 on a test score, all of which will increase brain dopamine, the firing pattern of those dopamine neurons is very different than the firing pattern becomes if you take a psychostimulant. So when GABA monitors dopamine cells and sees them increase their firing rate in response to what we call a natural reward, food, the company of a good friend, then that GABA is not released. However, when you take a drug like alcohol or a drug like nicotine or cocaine or meth, you actually change the dopamine firing pattern such that it's enough to trigger the GABA cell to release all that GABA and completely shut down the dopamine cell. So we don't have to worry about Vigabitrin producing decreases in natural rewards or producing symptoms like Parkinson's disease because its mechanism of action is very unique and it controls dopamine only when dopamine cell firing is altered in such a way that is consistent with a psychostimulant. Huh. Okay, so also in that way, I would assume that you don't get the high that you do with other GABAergic meds like diazepam or alprazolam, alcohol. That's absolutely correct. The beauty of it is that Vigabitrin is a enzyme inhibitor. Now, the benzodiazepines that you're talking about, like Xanax or Valium, are GABA receptor drugs. When you start to alter receptors, a couple of things happen. One, you can develop an addictive liability, and we certainly know that the benzos have an addictive liability. But when you target an enzyme, you don't have any of the problems associated with receptor activity. We don't have withdrawal. We don't have tolerance. 
and we have no addictive liability. So one of the beauties of this approach, unlike the methadone approach for heroin addiction, is this is not a replacement strategy. This isn't trading one addiction for another. It's blocking not only the reward associated with psychostimulants, but it's also blocking one of the, the number one cause of relapse, which are cue-induced or environmental triggers. The easiest way to describe that is if you think about a smoker, someone who smokes will crave a cigarette at a certain time, whether they're driving a car, after a meal, with alcohol. These are environmental triggers. These are things that cause an increase in brain dopamine. Any environmental trigger for a substance abuser will cause an increase in brain dopamine. That increase in brain dopamine is what signals the brain to start to crave. Well, Vigabatrin blocks not only drug-induced increases in brain dopamine, but it also blocks cue-induced increases in brain dopamine. So you actually take away the cue-induced triggers. And that becomes extremely important when you consider that these cues are the number one cause of relapse. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is senior scientist at Brookhaven National Laboratory, Dr. Stephen Dewey. We are discussing the effects of vigabatrin on dopamine release. So, Dr. Dewey, just to make sure I have this straight, so this we're really talking about stimulant-induced dopamine increase, not things like tobacco or chocolate or even something like THC? In fact, we're talking about all of them. We have done studies in all forms of not only drugs that increase brain dopamine, which can include foods, chocolates, non-psychostimulants, which can include alcohol and nicotine, but also behaviors associated with increases in brain dopamine. And these are things like gambling and things like obsessive compulsive disorder. One of the elegant things that I believe about this strategy is that it's applicable to virtually anything that increases brain dopamine, whether it's a behavior or whether it's a pharmaceutical. Now, how about other GABAergic compounds? What comes to mind is something like tiagabine or baclofen. Might they have a role in this, in this as well? Sure, absolutely. And what we have done is looked at done head-to-head comparisons of vigabatrin against all of these compounds, like tiagabine, like baclofen, like progabide. These are compounds that increase brain GABA levels. Of course, the difference here is that those compounds, tiagabine, baclofen, progabide, they work by increasing or binding the GABA receptor complex. Now, that, again, is very different than using a drug like vigabatrin, which binds to an enzyme. And it's very different in several ways. One, these other compounds, because they're receptor active, they carry with them a potential for an addictive liability. Two, because they're receptor active, they can produce tolerance, which means we have to increase the dose over time. And three, because they're receptor active, we have to worry about withdrawal. So we can't just take a person off the meds right away. And with vigabatrin, we don't have to worry about any of those things. The other advantage of a drug like vigabatrin is because it's a suicide inhibitor of an enzyme, which means it renders that enzyme inactive permanently, the rate-limiting step or the way to get around it is to synthesize new GABA, transaminase. To do that takes time. So what you get is you get a single dose can last for a very long period of time, which means we can look at dosing subjects perhaps one or two or three or four times a week with drug holidays. We don't have to worry about any kind of tolerance. We never have to worry about withdrawal. 
and there have been some elegant studies demonstrating that it has no addictive liability. And that's not the case with these other GABAergic compounds. So why can't we get Vigabatrin now in this country to treat things like epilepsy? The primary reason is because there were some reports that appeared saying that in long-term use of Vigabatrin, a small percentage of patients developed an asymptomatic visual field defect. Now, this was a loss in peripheral vision. It was asymptomatic, that is, patients never reported it, but it could be picked up on using some automated perimetry tests, like an automated Humphreys. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Stephen Dewey. We've been discussing bigabitrin, or GBG, research in the field of addiction. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.